This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and this is the Jack Riccardi Show. Well, good afternoon. I gotta gotta ask you a question, Christian, and I I, I want a short answer now and then we'll do a longer answer later. How's All right. that? Okay. Sounds good. All right. Last night, no-hitter by four combined pitchers of the Houston Astros against the Philadelphia Phillies. But Christian Javier went six innings, no-hit baseball, 97 pitches. He's up 5-0. Would you have left him in? A little longer, yes. I don't know that he would have finished. Because you know how that goes. Well, because that's the thing, right? Only one guy's ever thrown a complete game no-hitter in the World Series, Don Larson. Yep. And you look at the what the guy had. He, this guy had his – everything was working for him. Boy, he had his it best was. pitch working. Yeah. I mean, he was in the groove. Um, I know that nowadays baseball doesn't let these guys go over 100 pitches, but I just I, – I hate this kind of, I don't know, overly careful, cautious – Mm-hmm. I think he could have pitched the whole game. So we'll talk about that an hour from now because I got another question for you about that as well. All right, here we go. Let me tell you about last night. So last night I did not uh, tune in the president because we were doing the show. And then after the show, I um, met a friend of mine for dinner and I had a fantastic sandwich, which I'm going to tell you about later because today is National Sandwich Day. I'm going to talk about the important stuff here, right? Sandwiches. And then I had to pick up my daughter, which I say I had to, but I always love uh, spending any time I can with her. So that was that was all a great night. And I wasn't going to ruin it with Joe Biden's speech. But I watched it this morning. And I got some things to say about it. You know, Joe Biden and the Democrats have had in their hands, their ungrateful hands, all the reins of power and influence we have in this country. The executive and legislative branches of government, most of the media, technocracy, pretty much every great American institution, they've they've now got control over the military and they've infiltrated that with all their wokeness. They've got higher education, they've got the arts and entertainment and Hollywood, and they've got most of the big public corporations and producers. They've had it all. This, pe- this, this group of people have had it all, and they've brought forth every great scheme and dream they ever had. And we've, and we've experienced it, and we've lived under it. And we are miserable. And none of it works. So they've had their chance. Joe Biden and the Democrats have had their chance. And now they're facing next week, possibly, a historic absolutely historic repudiation. Not only in sheer numbers, but they may be losing with types of voters and in places they used to always take for granted. And you talk sports, this is the worst team to ever take the field. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, 
the whole the whole crew: Pete Buttigieg, Jennifer Granholm, Janet Yellen. You wouldn't put these people in in charge of a two car parade in some other country. And not only are they terrible at what they do, and not only have their ideas sucked, but they're petty and vicious and thin-skinned and intolerant. And so the guy they used as their Trojan horse to roll through the gates in 2020 last night goes to a train station in Washington, D.C., a place that I visited 20 years ago that was a beautiful, gleaming, shining, everything-that's-good-about-America kind of monument, Union Station, now is like something from a Mad Max movie. It's boarded up. It's drug-infested. And there he gives the same speech he's been giving for weeks, just like the one in Philly, only without the red lights. And again, it's the scolding finger. We're the bad people. How dare we throw his party out of power? How dare we complain? You are an insult and a threat to democracy. You. You who have worn its uniform and defended the country. You who kept showing up to work while they stayed home. You who went from planning a family vacation to having to choose between groceries and gasoline. You whose vote he doesn't ask for but demands. He wants you to know that you better accept the results of the election, except that we know he won't accept them if they go against them. And so I watched it, and all they have is there was nothing new. It was poorly written, poorly delivered. He looks drained. You, you don't even get mad watching him anymore because he's, he's not even believing what he's saying. And all they have is fear. That's it. That's all that's left. Scaring people. So things are terrible. They can't change your mind about that. But, but maybe they can somehow convince you that things would get worse if you changed horses in the middle of the stream. It was a hot mess last night. What was the message? Democracy is at stake. Come on, man. These people have taken apart a great country. They have undone so much good work, so much progress, so much of our reputation in the world. And by the way, the rest of the world is not doing so well, and they like to point that out because they're falling back on that. Well, you know, there's inflation in other countries. You know, one of the reasons the rest of the world is not doing so well is because America is not doing so well. Because as goes America, goes Europe. As goes America, goes our allies in Asia. It's, it's, it's not complicated, genius. Yes, you have wrecked not only our economy, but the global economy. And what do they have? They have this guy that looks exhausted, and they have vague threats and fears and... There was a guy on MSNBC last night. I used to have a lot of respect for him. He's a historian named Michael Beschloss. I've written, I've read, a, read a number of his books. He's very good at what he does. He's a very good historian. But they had him on MSNBC, and he was saying, um, six days from now, it could be that our children are being arrested and killed if the Republicans win the midterms. 
Our children could be arrested from, and killed, or we could be six days away from losing rule of law. So that's what they've... And, and, and mind you, today is Thursday. The election isn't until Tuesday. So imagine what imagery and, 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 and verbiage they'll be reaching for by the weekend. Or Monday. Monday night should be a hoot on MSNBC and CNN as they, as they anticipate the events of the next day. By the way, and I've mentioned this before, if MAGA Republicans are a threat to democracy, why have the Democrats contributed so much money to MAGA Democrats running in various races around the country? Why is it that some of the people who are now poised to win on Tuesday night, like the Republican Senate candidate in New Hampshire, Don Boldick, are people that first they said are MAGA Republicans and election deniers and dangerous, but then Schumer gave them a ton of money. Or Carrie Lake in Arizona. So if they're so afraid of election deniers and MAGA Republicans, why did they prop them up in the Republican primaries? Why would you play with that kind of fire if you really believed that it was the, you know, the impending death of your children. And, you know, I don't hear any, like, um, positive appeal. I don't hear them asking for your vote with any kind of humility. I don't, I don't, I don't hear, even hear them asking uh, for your vote in the sense of, hey, things are going to get better. They've given up promising that things are going to get better, and they've, they've gone to, well, thing, you think things are bad now. Go ahead and put those Republicans in. Things will be a lot worse. I hope they keep talking like this. I, mean, I really, I really do. I, I, I think this is the most effective help they can give the Republicans. You know, we found out that the um, the guy that broke into Nancy Pelosi's house was an illegal immigrant. We've now found out that the guy that broke into Katie Hobbs' headquarters in Arizona, remember she tried to blame it on Carrie Lake, that was an illegal immigrant. So it turns out that the two things in the news cycle right now that the Democrats are trying to blame on Americans who oppose them were done by people who shouldn't have been in the country in the first place and are because the Democrats can't enforce the border. But by all means, I should be scared about making any kind of a change. God forbid we upset this, this perfect balance we have right now, this, this winning team. These are the worst people who have ever run anything. And amazingly, they are calling attention to it rather than trying to deflect attention from it. We the people must decide whether the rule of law will prevail, whether we will allow the dark forces to thirst, that thirst for power, put ahead of the principles that we've long guided us. You know, American democracy is under attack because the defeated former president of the United States refuses to accept the results of the 2020 election. He refuses to accept the will of the people. He refuses to accept the fact that he lost he has abused his power and put the loyalty to himself before loyalty to the Constitution. And he's made a big lie, an article of faith in the MAGA Republican Party. 
All right, I can't take any more. And and we'll talk about it if you want to talk about it, but I'm not going to, I promise, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that speech. You know what they're doing? They're pre-denying the election results. In other words, instead of waiting till the results come in and saying we have issues, we're going to challenge, they're, they're challenging it already. They're challenging it before the votes get counted. We know that millions of votes have already been cast. They must feel like they are going to get shellacked. Because if they felt confident and good and things are going their way, then we don't need to talk about all this stuff. They're only talking about it to pre-deny what they think they're going to be grappling with this time next week. By the way, I love the way everybody says, well, it's going to take several days or weeks. You know, other countries have their election one night, get the results. We used to be the country that taught new democracies how to have elections. And now our leaders tell us, well, you may have to wait days or weeks, and we're not sure when we'll know, and you just better get used to it. F that. I'm not getting used to that. Uh, This may be the way it is now, but it's not going to be this way forever. I'm I'm not settling for this. Are you? Are you settling for elections that take longer than American Idol takes to crown a winner? No way. So, again, I... I get mad about him, but it's the same speech over and over again, and, and it's not worth, unless you want to talk about it, 210-599-5555. So the Supreme Court, I want to get into this. The Supreme Court has this affirmative action case in front of it. We've been telling you about it. Students for Fair Admissions is uh, going after Harvard and another university, I forget which one. And the, the, the premise here is that it's time to test the constitutionality of using racial and ethnic affirmative action uh, when accepting students. And the trigger for this was that Asian American students at these schools and many schools uh, have to get much, much, much higher test scores to qualify for admission. It's out in the open. Everyone knows this is happening. The schools are artificially and cruelly trying to cap the Asian American uh, population. So the uh, lawyers on both sides have been making, it's, it's been a much longer oral argument than, than a Supreme Court case normally gets. And we now get recordings released of the proceedings. So let me play for you what Clarence Thomas said about the word diversity, cut number six. I have to ask you... Um... I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, It seems to mean everything for everyone. I'm sorry, Don, you got the right cut, cut number seven. So he says, I've heard the word diversity. I don't have a clue what it means. It means something different for everyone. And then he asks them, what are the, what are the exact, what exactly are the educational benefits of diversity? And I have to tell you, as much as that's a very short sentence, that's a very powerful challenge. You All your life you've been told diversity. It's been extolled to you. But it's like a product that's been marketed without ever explaining what it does. You must have one. Every home must have one of these gadgets. But, but what does it do? You don't need to know that. You've got to have one. Over on The View, Whoopi Goldberg, who I think is, I used to defend her, but she's turning out to be a horrible person. She 
condescended to explain to Clarence Thomas with her big brain that he he doesn't know what he's talking about, um, and 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 that his his he's not making any sense about diversity. So listen to Whoopi Goldberg, uh, I guess woman explaining <laughs> diversity to Clarence Thomas. Actually, no, that's not what it means, sir. <laughs> you know, being inclusive means that when you look around that court, you're seeing women who may not have had the ability to go to law school had affirmative Whoa, action not been. Wait a minute. First of all, it wasn't inclusive. It was diversity. But also, women who may not have had the ability. Can we roll back, Don? I want to make sure I heard that right. Roll back to the beginning. You know, being inclusive means that when you look around that court, you're seeing women who may not have had the ability to go to law school had affirmative action not been there to make sure that women were allowed in the school. Okay, wait you, a minute. I thought, I thought you couldn't say that. That used to be what they accused conservatives of saying about affirmative action, that it elevates people who don't have the ability. And that's what she's saying. Thanks to affirmative action, people who didn't have the ability to be on the Supreme Court or the ability to be in law school get to be there. All right, continue. You are sitting on a court where, and I know you don't like to admit this, but you might have gotten some help because you would not have been allowed in the college of your choice had it not been for affirmative action. Hold it on. Is not okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Affirmative action came after... We, we passed the laws that lifted the color bars, which were, by the way, uh, supported by Democrats, so that you couldn't bar a student from a university because he was black or she was black. Then we got affirmative action. Then we got a form of discrimination that was sponsored by the people who are supposed to enforce no discrimination. So she's twisting this all around. She's saying affirmative action elevates people who don't have abilities. Sonia Sotomayor said during the oral arguments that she got on the Supreme Court with help from affirmative action. Does that mean, does Whoopi Goldberg think that Sonia Sotomayor really doesn't belong on the Supreme Court? She doesn't really have the abilities to be there? I mean, maybe she doesn't. It's pretty amazing to hear Whoopi Goldberg say that. All right, continue. Because you would not have been allowed in the college of your choice had it not been for affirmative action. It is not saying this is all you have to do. It is saying you have to include this as what you do. And you also ought to mention that the people who have benefited most from affirmative action have been women who are white. Because white women could not get into some of these schools. They were not oh, allowed really? to. So white women also don't have any abilities? Boy, Whoopi is, she's, she's like, she's like uh, Bull Connor. I mean, for crying out loud, she's like Bull Connor in dreads. So let me see if I get this right. Women, white women, black people, lack abilities. That's what she's saying. That's the word. And affirmative action got him in despite that. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to make Whoopi, I'm not going to do what they often do, which is set up a straw man argument. Whoopi Goldberg is clearly not the best representative for the other side's argument. But the fact that she sort of clears her throat like, 
All right, I'm going to explain this to Clarence Thomas. I, I, the comedian and daytime talk show host is going to is going to straighten out <laughs> the lifelong jurist, the 30 plus year member of the Supreme Court. He's going to she's going to she's going to educate him about affirmative action. Basically, um, affirmative action was sold on the tail end of the civil rights movement and the civil rights laws that were being passed in the 1950s and 60s. It was it was tacked on at the end, and the idea was, okay, well, we fixed the problem going forward, but now we have to make up for the ground that was lost back in the day. And we actually convinced Americans who've always believed in merit and meritocracy to suspend it. And it was sold to them by politicians who said it will just be temporary. It won't be for long. We won't be talking about this in 20 years, they said. That was like 50 more years ago, 50 or 60 years ago. Remember the the other thing you recently heard that was only going to be temporary and now it seems here for forever and ever? Yeah. Just like that. And so people, out of the goodness of their hearts, said, well, yes, there's been some terrible racism, so I guess, okay, all right, you know, leap of faith or whatever, Republicans and Democrats. And it, it has been evil. And part of the evil of it is that people like Whoopi Goldberg, and I don't even think she means to do it, but but the evil of, of affirmative action is that now when a person of color or a woman el- is elevated, there is someone murmuring in the back of the room, grumbling in the back of the room, saying, oh, well, you know, of course, naturally, they got the job. Naturally, they got the promotion. That's what it's done. This... um Supreme Court case, uh, whenever they issue the opinion, which I guess will be next spring or summer, this is going to be like the, the, this will be the big one of this session. This will be the one that becomes the Dobbs decision, if you will, of, of this Supreme Court term. And what do you think about it? Clarence Thomas says, what, what is, what does diversity actually mean? What's the value of the word? If we are saying, that you you wouldn't have uh, people rising through their merits, then what we're really saying is not there's a problem with the institution. We're saying there's a problem with the preparation. See, I, I think if you care about people, you would want to know and you would want to solve the problem of underperforming high school students who can't pass the test or qualify for the admission, rather than say, we'll just change the rules so that the outcome looks better to us. Because then you're putting people in a position to fail. You're putting people into institutions that will be difficult or uh, maybe even impossible for them. And then if you keep applying that diversity measure, you'll just keep passing them along You'll just keep painting over the cracks. You'll just keep ignoring their academic struggle or deficiency. And eventually, yes, you will have a heart surgeon who shouldn't be one or an airline pilot who shouldn't be one or a United States senator who shouldn't be one or whatever it is. I don't, I don't think that's progress. I don't think that's a help to anybody. That just makes white liberals feel less guilty. 
And I'm tired of doing that. I'm tired of gating everything in our society to making them feel better. Um, so, again, we had a civil rights movement that was a righteous struggle for the dignity of every person. And we put into law, and it took a long time, and it took courageous people in the Democratic Party, in the Republican Party, in the South, in the North, people with black skin, people with white skin, to do it. But then we came up with this concept of punishing people retroactively, which ironically we had just eliminated with the Civil Rights Movement. And we accepted that this was good if it was temporary and if it, if it addressed old injustices. But it wasn't temporary. We're, we're several generations into it. And it's wrong. And it's immoral. And for the first time in a long time, Democrats are having to defend it and they're not doing a very good job of it. And I don't just mean Whoopi Goldberg. When you start making the argument that we should elevate people or demote people based on their ethnicity or their appearance or the color of their skin, do you know what you get? When you elevate people based on appearance, you tend not to get very impressive people. I mean, think about, forget race for a minute. What if every time you had a job opening at your company, you hired the prettiest or most handsome applicant? Well, clearly, I mean, occasionally that might work out, but clearly a lot of the time it would not. I'm just going to hire the prettiest woman that applies or the most handsome man that applies. You would get mediocrity. And so the case against affirmative action is now in a place that is rigorous and the review of it is stern and, and uh, intellectual. This isn't some panel show on cable. This is the Supreme Court. The Constitution is being applied here. And they cannot defend it. I don't care how. Well, I mean, I don't think you can. I mean, eradicating racism is, is is to say that you're going to eradicate a bad um, habit in in the heart and mind of every person who has it. And you're right. I mean, there's no way to eradicate it. I, I question, though, Maria, whether we might not be perpetuating it or spreading it with things like affirmative action. Exactly. We're, if, we're teaching anything, people. You know, you said we can't be colorblind, but in fact. We were, for, for quite a while, we were becoming much less conscious of or obsessed with color. And now we're teaching people again to go back to that, to go back to seeing it and seeing it first. We're even teaching people who have like a little bit of something in their ancestry, hey, play that up, check the box, yeah. it'll give you an advantage. So that's the government, that's politicians, that's not moms and dads or churches. That's the government teaching people to act that way. Exactly. I totally agree that they're just inflaming the problem. And, you know, I never had any problem with anyone of any color, but suddenly in my neighborhood, 
um, I'm feeling like I'm a, like my skin's a little too light, and I don't feel comfortable anymore because I feel like now I'm getting looked at for my skin color. I've never felt that in my whole life. I think we're teaching people to think that way, and I'm I'm sorry to say I think we're I really think we're indoctrinating kids. I don't think we've even begun to see you know when the kids that are going through CRT now are out in the world running things and making decisions god help us if that's the only influence they have on how they think about uh, on how they think about race maria thank you for the call so justice kavanaugh had an interesting question at one point he asked one of the lawyers who was there's there's a bunch of lawyers obviously on both sides and one of the lawyers who was defending the universities uh, justice kavanaugh asked how are applicants from middle eastern countries like Jordan, Iraq, Iran, how are they classified? And uh, the lawyer said, my understanding is that like other situations where they might not fit within particular boxes on the common application, we rely on self-reporting so they can, basically he said they can check whatever box they wish to check. There is not a right answer on the race question for them. Kavanaugh then asks, but if they honestly check one of the boxes, which one are they supposed to check? I do not know the answer to that question, says the lawyer. So that's the polite answer. Gosh, I don't know what a Jordanian or an Egyptian would check. Let me give you the real answer. Let me give you the real answer. If you really want to get into that school, if you really want to get that scholarship, if you really want to... Whatever it is you're applying, if you really want the advantage, best bet would be to identify as a racial or ethnic minority. Right? Now, why do we do that? People are basically good. People are reflexively honest. We do that because we've been trained to do that. What's trained us to do that? Affirmative action has trained us to do that. And that right there, that if, if we knew nothing else about it than that, that would damn it in my eyes. That that's uh, that really is atrocious. But it, you see it all the time. I've 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 known people. Well, I've got a little bit of uh, Native American ancestry. I'm going to check the box. I've got a little bit of you know with ancestry.com you can find out all the things that are in your makeup, and then you can pretty much just take a highlighter and go. Well, okay, we're going to talk about this, this, and this whenever there's an application. That's what affirmative action has given us. Is that really diversity? It's diversity of 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 of, uh, of appearance, it's not diversity in any other sense. And if, in the meantime, people like Whoopi Goldberg are now admitting that it it makes up for inability or lesser ability, why aren't we addressing that? Why aren't we figuring that out? Rather than punishing Asian American students, we ought to be putting them under the microscope. We ought to be saying what can be gleaned from a culture that values education, that, that puts it at the forefront, that requires its sons and daughters to do their schoolwork and to uh, do their best. And why wouldn't that work if that same value or those same practices were applied? or It's called best practices in the business world. Why aren't we studying the best practices? Instead, we're punishing 
the best practices. It is not saying this is all you have to do. It is saying you have to include this as what you do. And you also ought to mention that the people who have benefited most from affirmative action have been women who are white. We all know they can't do anything. Right? Thanks, Whoopi. Thank you. 454 KTSA, Jack Riccardi, 210-599-5555. The Supreme Court is debating affirmative action at the university level and expected to issue a landmark opinion uh, sometime during this session. We're talking about it here on the Jack Riccardi Show. Rudy is on KTSA. Hi, Rudy. Hey, how's it going, Jack? Um, I, you know, it's amazing to me that this has hung around as long as it has, uh, especially in light of, you know, the whole racial bias and looking at different things. When I'm looking for somebody to hire a lawyer, a doctor, or whatever, the last thing I'm looking at is the color of their skin. What I want is the best person for the job. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what their sexual orientation is. I don't care about any of that stuff. What I want to know is who's the best person to do the job. And we've lost sight of that completely. Uh, well, you know, no, is, see, the thing is, Rudy, yeah, you're saying you do that, but the truth is, even right. the defenders of affirmative action do that. Right. I mean, you know, right. you know that when they need work done at their house or an operation or stuff on their car, you know they don't say, now, you know, I haven't had a, um, a Nigerian person before. Let me find one of the, they're not doing that. Right. They're not saying so it's a it's a crock. The they they'll do it with other people's resources, but they're not doing it with, when it's their own stuff. Absolutely, you know, and and the, the whole idea or the definition of racism is using race to make a determination or to decide something. If you're giving somebody an opportunity based on the color of their skin, that's racism. Affirmative action yeah. is just promoting racism. And yeah. Well, it was sold to people. The reason it's hung around is because initially it was sold to people as, yeah, we know this sounds weird, but we got to do it to make up for. We can't just say to everybody, uh, okay, everybody gets to come to the starting line. We have to acknowledge the past things that hobble the people that we're now letting to the start. So that was a very, it was a very um, seductive pitch. It, it appealed to people's sense of fair play. It was a, it, it was carefully crafted. Uh, especially during the Johnson and Nixon administrations by people that really knew their way around the English language. And so the, the, the legislatures of the time and the courts of the time and the, the public opinion of the time, uh, fell for it. I thought Tucker Carlson made a great point about this. I forget if it was a couple of nights ago or whenever it was. They were talking about affirmative action and, and he said basically it comes down to the statement Give me this because of how I was born. And either he or one of his guests made the point, give me this because of how I was born, was exactly the premise of Jim Crow. It was exactly the premise of Southern racism. I, I was born white, I, therefore I should be running the town, running the company, in charge of everything, making the rules. And that's an, ab- an abhorrent philosophy that's a ridiculous claim give me this because of how i was born and yet if you think about it it is essentially the stripped down definition of affirmative action give me that slot at the university that i didn't earn that i don't have the test scores for that i might not even be able to handle 
over the person that proved he or she could do it and put in the work and has the ability. No. Um, I know that you said uh, last hour with Christian Javier and the, the Astros last night, you would have kept him in longer, but you would not have let him go for a nine-inning no-hitter. Even though he was up five to nothing and he was striking everybody out and his pitch was that, that rising fastball he has was just totally working, you, you would have pulled him at some point and not gone a complete game. No, no, I'm not saying that. I, 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 don't, I, know, I said I don't know that I would have let him finish, only because it's World oh, okay. Series and everything. Is yeah. like, but, you know, I got to see Nolan Ryan pitch a couple times growing up in you know, DFW, and that's kind of beside the point. But the two games I saw, I think he set new records for strikeouts against the Angels and the Red Sox. This is like the summer of 91, I think. Even at his age, he was so unbelievably dominant. What I'm saying is right. when the pitcher is on, don't fix what's not broken. I yeah, did, see, that's how you know? I feel. That's yeah. how I feel. And I, yep. I think they had a chance to – I mean – it's great that they won. We have a brand new World Series. Fantastic. But, um, I mean, what, what, how can you, have you ever seen two games with such totally different, no. uh, momentum shifts? I no. mean, talk about a, a momentum shift. But, um, I, I just, I hate this sort of analytical, overly analyzed way we're doing sports. So they were talking about this on ESPN this morning and they made an interesting comparison. I want to run this by you. So do you leave Christian Javier in? Uh, and he becomes the second guy ever to have a, a complete game no-hitter in a World Series? Or do you pull him because we now pull pitchers? I think the magic number is pretty much around 100, and he was at 97. And then they compared him to the Philadelphia Eagles. To the Eagles? Now the Eagles The Eagles are the last undefeated team, right? And according to the analytics, they have the easiest schedule remaining of any team in the NFL. By far. They've had the easiest schedule all year. Uh, let me give you their schedule. For folks who don't know, here's their schedule. Uh, of course, they're, they're here tonight with Houston. They're, they're playing Washington at Indy, Green Bay, Tennessee, at the Giants, at Chicago, at Dallas, New Orleans, and the Giants. And mm -hmm. that's, their, that's the rest of their season. So there was, this is their question. If they're up at like 13 and nothing, 14 and zero, you know, late in the year, do you pull the starters? Do you rest Jalen Hurts? And because you've already sealed up, sewn up the, the, the number one seed, or do you try to have the first undefeated season since the Miami Dolphins? Well, I think we're way, way ahead on the Eagles going undefeated. Well, sure we are, but it's a uh, hypothetical. You know, it's a, uh, yeah. Well, we saw this with Peyton Manning. I think the Colts had a couple of really good teams in the early 2000s. Uh, then the debate was, well, do you hold out? You know, everybody on Week 16. Now, oddly enough, the Colts were early. You know, they had early exits after some. You know, like a 15 and one season, 14 mm -hmm. and two. So yeah. yeah, you want to keep the momentum going, but I think there's a difference between the Eagles at midseason having played nobody and a guy pitching a no hitter in the World Series. Right. Well, that's you know? why I was saying if we're late in the season and they are still undefeated right now, you can't you can't make this call. Mm -hmm. I, to me, the difference is first of all, I, I I get that the most important thing, whether you're the the Astros or the Phillies. Uh, excuse me, we're the Eagles. The most important thing is is to win, right? The most important that's thing right. is to win the game, to win the series, to win mm -hmm. the season, to win the Super Bowl. So that's that trumps individual achievements and and glories. 
I, I do think in the case of the uh, in the case of the uh, Astros, I, I I think he could have, I think they could have done this, and I th- I think it's a little bit unfortunate that we didn't get to see that. In the case of the uh, undefeated football team scenario, I would absolutely uh, rest my starters and you know take oh, yeah. a little bit of a break because that's not going to glorify any individual. That's a that's totally a team thing, and as long as you don't do it to the point like you said, where you're rusty, and then the bye week makes you even more rusty. As long as you're not doing that, I think you're good. Yeah, I'll just close by saying I think in football the physicality of the game really brings right. a different ingredient that baseball right. just doesn't have. Um, right. So it's it's kind of apples and oranges. But I wonder if pitchers today really can't go longer, or we've just decided that they shouldn't go longer. I think it's the the latter. I think it's what you just said. I think I think managers follow the it's these metrics and like you i miss the days of little league where the best kid for me a couple years then when i wasn't much of a pitcher anymore you had a better kid he's pitching tonight and he's going the distance we're going to win or we're going to lose but nobody's counting jack right right there you go (laughs) there you go baseball without tablets all right thank you christian uh we're coming up uh on uh, another update on ktsa time saver traffic congressman chip roy uh, is going to join us uh, as well. We're going to talk about the midterms. We're going to talk about what's going on uh, in Washington. We'll get his reaction to uh, President Biden's uh, speech last night. Um, speaking of the midterms, I, I want to kind of float this idea. Because I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. Now, you know, I-, I like to think of myself as an ideas guy, not a personality guy. Like, to me, the important thing for our public affairs is the right principles, right? Not um, personalities and I, I really like this guy or whatever. Got to have the right ideas. But I was thinking about the way these midterms have shaped up. And what triggered it for me was, and I'm going to play it for you here in a little while, I was watching another interview with Katie Hobbs, the Arizona Democratic uh, gubernatorial candidate, and she is such a, a limp just a, a, a limp noodle. I mean, she's just awful. She's just she has this kind of whiny, squeaky voice. She's she's the one that won't debate her opponent, and she keeps making excuses for why uh, she won't do that. She was ahead in the polls, but now it looks like she may be slipping behind uh, the Republican. The Republican candidate is Carrie Lake, who we've also played on the show uh, in the past. I started noticing. You look at these Republicans, Carrie Lake. Um, Ron DeSantis, uh, and, and, and I could name several, J.D. Vance, versus these Democrats, I'm talking about the battleground states, the swing states, like, you know, Carrie Lake versus Katie Hobbs. Or in Florida, you have Charlie Crist. Democratic uh, Senator in Washington, Patty Murray, who I don't think everybody knows, but if you're kind of a political junkie, Patty Murray looks like a cat lady. You know, she's got like this mousy, hip, 60s hippie haircut. And she just looks like a lady that would have like a lot of cats and a rusty Subaru and just kind of a, again, kind of a tired looking person, low energy. And of course, you have John Fetterman. And I started thinking, I'm not saying you vote this way, but I think a lot of people vote on image, on appearance. They're looking for somebody that that is alpha, you know, 
who who looks like a leader who looks like somebody that should be in charge we'll put that person in charge i'm not i'm not don't get me wrong i'm not endorsing this methodology i'm just saying don't you think this is a methodology for a lot of people and this to me is a huge advantage to the republicans as you look around the country they are running a number of people who look like achievers who look like Okay, even if they don't win their race, they're going to be running something. They're going to be the people in charge somewhere. I mean, J.D. Vance is just an intellectually energetic person. And then you look at the people they're running against. Katie Hobbs and Patty Murray and Charlie Crist. And, and, and Fetterman is not really that much of an outlier. We, we have, obviously, we have a special case there and a special medical circumstance. But the, these people are not leadership material. And they don't present that way. And I just think there's a dynamic going on with that. Again, how many voters that matters to and how many voters will vote that way, I don't know. But I'm quite sure some of them do and will. Joining the show now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line is Congressman Chip Roy. Congressman, good afternoon. Welcome back. Jack, good to be on as always. I hope you are doing great. I am. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope you are as well. Since this might be the last time we talk before election night, uh, first let me ask you sort of generally, uh, taking the temperature, how are you feeling about your race and about um, the midterms for the Republican Party uh, next Tuesday? Well, I'm generally not one. I'm kind of one of those guys that doesn't like to talk about no hitters in the eighth inning, uh, even when it's a, uh, you know, uh, Houston Astros putting one together with the entire roster, uh, as they did last night. But uh, I, don't, I don't like to prognosticate, but in this case, I think it is safe to say there's zero doubt in my mind Republicans will absolutely win the House of Representatives. Uh, I think we will probably end up between 235 and 240 seats, give or take, five seats, probably in either direction. Uh, I think it'll be a strong showing. I think it's a thorough rebuke of the current administration's failings. I think the Senate is likely to go Republican. That's a closer call. I think it'll go 51-52, but it's kind of hard to tell for sure. Some of those races are going to be a little tough. We won't even know Pennsylvania for a while because they're they don't have a really good system in place. Up, you know, six weeks of early voting and stuff. So we'll hopefully uh, have both houses. Uh, Texas 21 is a uh, we're, we're feeling good. Uh, as you know, we had a tough race two years ago, thirty million dollars, third most expensive race in the country. Uh, but uh, we worked it hard. We won by seven points, uh, which was a lot. It was a big margin. We outperformed President Trump because we knocked almost half a million doors. And, and uh, we feel good this time. Uh, it's a better district now. Uh, we, we shed downtown in South Austin and redistricting. So now it's a thoroughly San Antonio-based seat, and it's a, it's a, it's a solid conservative district. So um, we feel good about it, but we need everybody to show up and do their part. I think um... – I'll tell you who I think has really helped your party are uh, are the Democrats and the Democratic media. I mean, everything they've chosen to talk about, like the other day, this whole narrative about COVID amnesty, the Biden speech last night. I mean, all of this, to me, it, you couldn't ask for a better, uh, <laughs> a better setup for the case that you all are making. No, that's exactly right. Now, one thing I do want to note that I think is really important. On Tuesday, Republicans are going to do well because it is a thorough rebuke of the Biden administration and the Pelosi Democrats and the Schumer Democrats. That's what it is. Republicans should not get all high and mighty. They shouldn't, you know, fill their 
chest to be walking around like they've done something to, to really write home about. Republicans actually will begin the hard work on November 9th of earning the respect and love of the American people by actually leading. Uh, Tuesday is about how bad this current administration is on inflation, on energy policy, on our situation abroad, empowering China, empowering cartels, open borders, fentanyl killing our kids, inflation killing people's budgets, the high cost of health care, the the woke absurdities, uh, the transgender surgeries. Uh, Go down the list of things, the student loan repay, like literally everything is wrong. If you set out to try to harm our country and to do a worse job, I don't know how you possibly could do uh, more than this administration is doing. So it will be rebuked on Tuesday, but then the hard work begins for Republicans to earn the respect of the American people, to get behind a bold... I I am glad you're saying that because I think that is a a very important point. And they will have gained a lot of seats, not as much for who they are as for what is being rebuked and and uh, and basically fired. Um, you mentioned parents and uh, the woke uh, gender education that we're seeing. Th- this, to me, is one of the biggest movers or drivers of uh, independent voters, uh, politically non-aligned voters. I mean, there's a, there's a parental revolution going on in this country, and I know you're involved in... Um, questioning the way the Biden Justice Department uh, is basically trying to silence and shut down uh, parents who dare ask, what is it you're talking to my kid about? Well, that's exactly right. And in fact, it is a grand opportunity for Republicans to grab the mantle to be the party of parental empowerment. The party that stands with families, not with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and uh, big national organizations coming in to target parents, like, for example, the American Medical Association, the American Pediatric Association, those that were asking the Biden administration to go after parents and go after people in their community. If they dare publicly question the wisdom of these transgender uh, gender modification surgeries, the very surgeries, by the way, that even the you know, enlightened leftists of Europe are all saying, whoa, 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 slow your roll a little bit. You know, there's a lot of kids that kind of go through a lot of tough decisions in those years. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be encouraging that as much. Yet you got the radical left here wanting to take power out of the hands of parents, target parents if they dare question a school board when, like Scott Smith, had his daughter get assaulted in a bathroom in a school. So we can be the party of parental empowerment. And that starts here in Texas, by the way, in the legislative session, empowering parents to be able to have choice in schools. And, it, and it's also in Washington, getting the feds out of the business of the parents. Uh, they have no business being there, and I think it's an opportunity for Republicans. I mean, as you look at the the shifting demographics, voting groups, and so forth, a couple of things seem obvious. Again, we, we don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, but it does seem as if types of voters that, that the Democrats could take for granted and did take for granted may be shifting. Um, do, what else besides the the parental awakening, which ironically grew out of the distance learning during COVID, right? What what, what else do you think is driving, uh, you know, Democratic blocks or voter groups toward your party? Well, I think you're seeing a couple of things. Number one, obviously, in South Texas, we're seeing uh, races where you've got Cassie Garcia taking on Henry Cuellar, and you've got, uh, you know, Myra Flores, and you've got Monica de la Cruz in Virginia. You've got Yesley Vega. You've got Hispanic voters who are being tired of taken for, uh, taken for granted by uh, Democrats who like to go around talking about, quote unquote, brown people uh, as if that's some monolithic, monolithic block that they can just buy off. 
and, and they're tired of it. I mean, I spend I, I go to the, the border almost once a month and I go meet with leadership there and I go meet with people that are sick and tired of the fentanyl, sick and tired of the cartels, sick and tired of the crime, sick and tired of the open borders. Uh, and they they just want what every American wants. They don't want to be judged by the color of their skin. They want freedom. They want opportunity. They want security. Um, and, and I think we're winning a large block of Americans by focusing on those things. The second block, I would say, are surprisingly some movement among white suburban women, uh, which we're seeing some polls. I think the Wall Street Journal had some this week, yeah, uh, which yeah. has been a block where we have not fared as well, obviously. But I think the left has overplayed its hand. I think they got cocky after Dobbs thinking that was going to be their savior. Uh, and, and, and it's not because they're out there trying to target a particular demographic while actually flying in the face of what a lot of those voters want. They want security. They want a strong economy. They don't want inflation. They don't want to have to pay more for gas at the pump. They don't want an unreliable grid. They don't want to have their children uh, be told that they've got to go have some sort of gender-modifying surgery. They're sick of the craziness. So, look, Americans, the Republican Party has an opportunity right now to be the party of common sense, the party of freedom, the party of opportunity. And, and, and I hope we will be up to the task. I know I'll be fighting for that on, on Wednesday. Congressman Chip Roy, I always appreciate having you. Thank you for coming on today, and we'll speak to you again uh, probably around or right after election night, but thank you. Happy to do it, Jack. God bless you. Today's National Sandwich Day. I'm a big sandwich fan. Do you like sandwiches? And I, I don't like it when people act like sandwiches are not real meals. Like, like somehow it's juvenile or, uh, you know, it's like uh, it's not, it's not, you're not really eating a meal if you have a sandwich. A sandwich is a meal that you can hold in your hands, you know? If you took the things in a sandwich, the meat, the veggies, etc., the grains, you spread them out in a plate, does that make it a meal? It's a meal. Sandwich is a meal. I remember when I moved out on my own, my mom would always check on me. You know, are, are you eating all right? Are you eating? Which I don't know why she thought that, because she had seen me. I was eating like six meals a day. So are you eating okay? Are you getting good meals? I said, yeah, yeah. What did you have today? Well, I had a sandwich. Oh, that's not real. Come on, that's not a real dinner. I think it is. Are you a sandwich fan? So today is National Sandwich Day. Where do you like to get sandwiches? What's your favorite sandwich place in San Antonio? Favorite place to get a sandwich. Now, don't answer this if you're not a sandwich person. If you're not into sandwich, I, I, it's okay. We can be friends, but I'm talking about for people that really love a good sandwich. Where do you like to go? What's the go-to place? 210-599-5555. I know it's not Friday, but it's National Sandwich Day. We can take a moment. My favorite place to get sandwiches, and I don't get to go there as often as I would like, and we, we hear about it a lot on the dish on Friday nights. We, I, think, I, I think we just had a call about it like a week or two ago, is Zito's. Have you ever been to Zito's on Broadway outside 410? It's a kind of a old-school deli, the kind of place where they're yelling the, the orders and calling out your number. and you know, it's, it's like when you picture a deli in, I don't know, New York or something. Zito's is like that kind of place. I love Zito's. Um, I would definitely say another place I really like is WD Deli, which is also on Broadway but further down. Have you ever been there? That's been there forever. I think it just changed hands recently, ownership, but it's it's the same great place. And I do get there once in a while, and everything is good at WD Deli. Um, but what do you like? What do you? Where do you like to go for a good sandwich? Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. In honor of National Sandwich Day, talk about that. We were talking about uh, last night. We had a lot of people calling in about 
Midnight Rodeo, and we're going to check in with City Councilman Clayton Perry, who has some uh, of the latest information on what's going on there. Uh, so he's going to join us in a few minutes on KTSA. But all right, in honor of National Sandwich Day and best place to get a sandwich, Mary Kay is on KTSA. Hi, Mary Kay. Good evening. This um, used guys in Universal City on Pat Booker Road has oh, yeah. genuine style Jersey hoagie and also Philly cheesesteak. That is a good place. Yeah, that is a very you good place. I think. It. I think is there more than one of those, or is that the only? Is that the only one? No, that's the only one. It's just outside one? Randolph Air Force Base. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good place. I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank, yeah. thank you, Mary Kay. Use guys in Universal City, two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Yeah, to me, I'm I'm not saying I eat them all the time. Don't get me wrong, but to me, I, a, a sandwich is like perfection. And you know, you know how you know when you really have a good sandwich, when you have to lean over the plate. Because there's so much good stuff in that sandwich. You don't dare, right? You cannot. You've got to stay over the plate. You've got to stay over the, the plate zone. That's when you know you're in sandwich heaven. Emily is on KTSA. Emily, good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Are you a sandwich fan? I am, and I like everything you said. But I just picked up a $5 huge sandwich from Schlossky's today. Oh, yeah, they do a pretty good job of Schlossky's. Schlossky's? Yeah. 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 There's a medium yeah. for $5 today, so I, that's my dinner. Very nice. Yeah, their medium is yeah. plenty. They, you don't need more than that. Yes. Unless you're yes, yes. going to split it with somebody. Yeah, which one did you get? Um, I got the uh, Fiesta chicken. Very I just nice. alternate that. I like the Fiesta chicken, but then, of course, their original is really good. Very nice. Stay over the plate, Emily, right? Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> Thanks yeah, for the call. Right. Thank you for calling our show. Uh, Paul is on KTSA, 210-599-5555. Hello, Paul. Hey, Jack. Uh, I love thunderclouds, and um, they used to have two or three of them in San Antonio, and I'm not sure if they have any more in, in San Antonio. They have one in New Braunfels, mm-hmm. and I go there when I'm, whenever I'm there. But they originated out of Austin. I still and, see the uh, I still see the one in Austin that's over by uh, the Palmer Center, and I don't know if they have other ones yeah. as well there. But you, you're saying you don't know if there's. I know there used to be. I used to see them around San Antonio. Are they are they not here anymore? Yeah, uh, there was one in Stone Oak area, uh, right? I think on maybe off of Stone Oak Parkway, but uh, I think they closed because of COVID and knocked them out. Okay, um, I'm looking right now. It looks place. like the one that's on. Um, it looks like the one that's uh, on Nacogdoches, right where Nacogdoches and North New Braunfels cross, that one apparently is still open. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, you, I'm going to go then. <laughs> yeah, it says 1901, 1901 Nacogdoches Road, Thundercloud Subs. All right. Well, I'll, I'll be there soon. If I'm remembering, that's right next to, it's right next to a Starbucks. So if you see the Starbucks, it's right next to it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you that. You got it. Thank you. Hey, sandwich people got to help out other sandwich people. I went to a place last night that I've driven by many times, and I, I, I'm i going to tell you about it because it is a hidden gem, and I can't believe I haven't tried it sooner. It's called Gold Feather. It's a weird name, and it's a chicken place. It's not really a sandwich place per se, but they have sandwiches, and I had their 
I think it was just called their chicken sandwich. It was really good. It was the perfect kind of, you know, hot fried chicken, a little bit spicy with the just the right amount of, of uh, you know, what am I trying to say? Accoutrements. <laughs> Some kind of sauce on it. Uh, the bread was just right. And I got it with a salad. You, I think you can get it with fries. They have several different sandwiches. And then they have like chicken tenders and, and other things. Really, really nice place, nice people. And it's um, 834 Northwest Loop 410. It's, it's basically, it's in that Park North Center. So if you know where like that Target is, uh, they're at Park North and the World Market. It's right in that little area. So maybe 410 in Blanco. But the address, the official address is 834 uh, Northwest Loop 410. Gold Feather. A very good chicken sandwich. Already thinking about going back and getting another one of those. All right, National Sandwich Day. Uh, where do you like to get a sandwich? 210-599-5555. Jeff is on KTSA. Hi, Jeff. Yes, sir. Your previous caller, Thunderclouds. And they're, that shop is a good shop. I go there some, and oh, good. I love it. Good. That's your, favorite, so is that your favorite, my, is that your favorite uh, sandwich, the Thundercloud subs? It, it's my favorite sandwich. Actually... The shop that I normally go to, part of my work travels me to uh, Austin, and I, I love uh, the one, the thunderclouds on, I think it's Riverbend Road there, and um, yeah. I, I love that yeah. shop for some reason. That always good uh, sandwiches there. Yeah, that's a good one. It has kind of that old, that old fashioned uh, kind of neon sign. I know exactly the one you mean. Uh, Jeff, yeah. thank you. Appreciate the call, sir. Good job. Uh, let me get to uh, Richard on KTSA. Hi, Richard. Hey, Jack. How you doing? Good, Richard. How about you? I'm doing great. I have two places that I like sandwiches, and one of them is the Purple Garlic Grill on on 281. Okay, yeah. They, they have one called the Dino that has everything on it. It's just delicious. Nice. And... Then I like the brown bag on Wetmore. Oh yeah, yeah. We've had calls on that over the years. Yeah, that's supposed to be really good. What what's the good one to get there? I love their uh Philly cheesesteak. Okay. They make a real they make a really good one. Chili the, the, the Philly cheesesteak at the brown bag deli on Wetmore. Richard, thank you. Appreciate your call, sir. Um it's like we're doing a miniature version of the dish, like giving you a little preview of the dish on Friday night. Let me grab one more here because we got to get to Clayton Perry. Uh, Michael is on KTSA. Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing today? Good, thank you. Oh, uh, there's a great place that I like to go to. Family-owned place, great establishment. Um, it's called Chicago Bagel on uh, oh, Wurzbach yeah. and yeah. Vance Jackson. Mm-hmm. Really great place. They used to have a little dine-in area, but, you know, with the pandemic, they had to, to up their game and change their game a little bit. So now it's uh, to-go orders. But, man, very, mm-hmm. very good. I used to get the uh, the City Hall. Very, very good sandwiches. Again, just a great family-owned restaurant. It, it's really good. That's where I – anytime I'm in need of a sandwich, that's where I go there get you go. sandwiches. It's called Chicago Bagel. Yes, sir. All right. Good job, Michael. Appreciate the tip. Everybody in Sandwich Nation – Getting some new places to try. Um, Right here, though, we're going to spend a minute on our 
KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line with District 10 City Councilman Clayton Perry, uh, who was um, keeping an eye on that midnight rodeo building even before uh, the big fire uh, yesterday. Councilman Perry, <laughs> welcome back. Good afternoon to you. Hi, Jack. How are you doing? Yes. Uh, Good, thank I, you. I, yeah, I know there were, a lot of people yesterday were, were having fond memories of that building, but you, you've been somewhat concerned, and other people have, about it sitting there these last few years, right? Yes, and unfortunately, and I, I, I've even visited there many years ago and making a few laps around that place myself. But, yeah, it had fallen into disrepair. They had closed the doors, and, uh, you know, the the – the repairs on it weren't being done. It wasn't being secured very well. And um, I, I actually went on a dark team visit there where uh, it was a mess inside. People were living in there and, and uh, you could see drug paraphernalia in there. They were uh, drinking some of the alcohol that was uh, left behind. I mean, and it, it was just a horrible mess. I mean, there must have been 10 20,000 vinyl records in there which mm-hmm. uh you know that that uh, didn't help with the fire either so yeah, yeah it, it it was a mess and 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 continual heartaches with the uh, tagging that was being that was taking place and we'd go over there and fix it and paint it up and paint over all that stuff and heck within the next few days it'd be all tagged up again so um, yeah, it's it's been a continual uh, nightmare for us and, and for the community around it uh, that, you know, would have to look at that and uh, uh, a lot of illegal dumping. I mean, I could just go on and on. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and the we fire itself, the, the fire itself certainly was a direct threat to other businesses that are still open uh, right in oh, that absolutely. same uh, area. I, I guess the, the question I want to ask you before we go is, well, are there a lot of places like this that maybe aren't as well known, but where the the, the building is vacated? You know, we're going to have, I think in the coming years, we're probably going to have a lot of former office space that's just abandoned. And does the city have a good approach for things like this? Yes, we're we're working on. Uh, actually, we have an ordinance now that uh, addresses vacant buildings and the registration of them, and and there's a fee associated with it for us to inspect them and making sure that they're secure and uh, keeping an eye out on on vacant buildings across town. So there there already is an ordinance, and we're working on that. We're looking at that again uh, to update it and, and taking in more areas used to, it was just downtown in the downtown area, but we're now expanding that outside of the center of San Antonio. So we, we are working on that and, uh, yeah, it's a problem. And if you leave a building vacant for any period of time, yeah, people are going to get in there and use it as a place to stay or other, other types of activities. So we want to, we want to make sure that we're uh, controlling that situation, particularly on buildings that border neighborhoods and other businesses, just like you said. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Appreciate your uh, getting with us on this and your attention to it, and uh, look forward to speaking with you again, District 10 City Councilman Clayton Perry. Thanks for coming on KTSA. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. Joining the show now is a good friend. Uh, we've had him on for most, if not all, the books he's written about uh, Claire Carlson. Uh, novelist and former journalist R.G. Belsky, Dick Belsky, joining us on KTSA's Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. I just finished it last night, Dick. Literally just finished the book, 
It's news and, to me. And, and, and loved yeah, it. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to love it. Okay. You know, you know, you know, <laughs> you're good with me. I mean, if you keep writing the Claire Carlson a, books, I, I'm going to keep reading them. I wouldn't have asked a question if I didn't hope that, didn't think that was the answer. No, <laughs> that's you a said, good, no, yeah, that's a good strategy. Said, yeah, uh, you don't, you don't want to open up an interview what? by uh, inviting an insult. <laughs> I, I want to yeah, ask you, and uh, for know, folks really, that don't... I really didn't like that book. You know, what the hell? No, right, no, not a, and that's not getting off on the right foot. For folks that don't know, um, uh, Dick Belsky was a top editor at the New York Post, the New York Daily News, uh, uh, upper management guy at NBC and NBC News Digital, mm-hmm. and, and has written several uh, mystery novels in which they always say, write about what you know, so you, you bring in your background, your knowledge of the way newsrooms work, of the way news is gathered, of the way that uh, journalists and newsmakers mix and interact to, to write these mystery novels. And your, your protagonist is a woman who's a, an award-winning, uh, you know, she's, she's a dirty fingers, ink-stained fingers, real-life journalist. Right. But right, she's also right. a character or a... Not a character, but a what am I trying to say? She's a she's a participant. She gets involved in these in these mysteries, um, and so yeah, it's a terrific. Uh, in this case, she's she's covering the death of a of a beautiful young woman who was a college student who was found beaten to death, right. and when she looks more closely, this uh, young girl named Riley has been connected to all these other very powerful shadowy uh, people in New York, right? Right. And, and, you know, one of the things as a journalist, certainly in my years at the New York Post, where I spent most of my time, uh, like 20 years, is we covered a lot of really sensational crimes. And uh, and this is what happens in the book. Riley Hunt is a young, beautiful college co-ed who's got, you know, everything going for her and she's murdered. And um, it seems to be a sort of random, meaningless crime. But of course, that wouldn't be a very interesting book. And so Claire begins, you know, trying to say, well, what really happened here? And yeah, she uncovers all sorts of stuff. And it involves police corruption. It involves um, uh, the mob. It involves, you know, long buried family secrets. And it involves a a guy who came back from Afghanistan, a veteran uh, who was in really bad shape and they're and you know the everybody's trying to blame him for the murder except Claire and Claire is the only one who believes you know he didn't do it so that also gets me to talk a little bit about you know returning veterans and some of those issues that you know that I can see and I'm I'm actually a returning veteran too so it's like something that you know I I care about so I I get to throw a little you know political stuff in there too as long, as well as just the uh, the mystery how do you um like, how did you get the idea for the for the Riley Hunt murder, which is the basis for this book? And I, as you say, it involves a lot of other things. But like, what was the? How do you come up with that? Uh, there was a college co-ed that was actually murdered here uh, for no particular reason in Manhattan. It got a lot of play. I mean, you know, one of one of the criticisms of journalists, and it's true, is that not not all murder is treated equally. And uh, you know, a lot of people get killed, and I'm sure that's true in san antonio too a lot of people get killed and a lot of it doesn't get publicity but the right kind of victim you know uh uh you know it 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 explodes onto page one and uh so i take an event like that and i've done that with you know the old rip from the headlines kind of thing i take an event like that that i read about and then i kind of make up a lot of facts about it in other words i don't tell that story i just say well what you know what if that didn't happen what if this happened what if this happened and um you know the result is you you're able to uh to write a uh, a novel on it but you know i mean it, it 
to some degree, it's like the old law and order, you know, or just still on law and order, which is uh, you take something that's ripped from the headlines mm-hmm. and you fictionalize it in a way that, uh, um, you know, that 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 hopefully makes a, uh, an interesting book. But, you know, as we sort of said at the beginning, Jack, I mean, to me, the the most important part of the book is Claire, because I like to think that even if the story wasn't that interesting, that if, you know, you're like Claire, you're going to read the character. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like watching, for me, like Columbo or something on TV, you know, like you're watching it because you like the character. And that's that's kind of what I've tried to do with Claire. Do you, and, and, you know, the other thing you bring to the table, uh, we've talked about this before, is this is a real interesting glimpse into news gathering, newsrooms. When people think of the media, they don't think about the the back room. They don't think about the cubicles. They don't think about the meetings, right? Yeah. They just think about what we see on the screen. Right. And what I try and, you know, what I try and bring to, 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 to these books, too, is the kind of the intensity and the stress. I mean, it's kind of like, to some degree, you probably go through that in radio and TV news is the same, which is, you know, every day you come to work and you kind of got to prove yourself. Um, and that, that's a, there's a lot of pressure on people to do that, like Claire. And it's not just a, you know, a nine to five job where she comes in and sits at her desk every day. So uh, that's kind of what I what I try and show the, the reality of what my life was like, where every day you come in and uh, you have to meet a deadline. You have to have a front page store. You have to beat the opposition. You know, having said all that, of course, you know, real life newsrooms aren't quite as interesting because it's like any job. There's a lot of boring days where you sit around and not much is happening. But, um, you know, I fictionalize it a lot. And uh, and, uh, you know, so Claire is did, always involved in a big story. Did you have to be careful because you. Uh, you've created obviously a fictional television station, a fictional owner, a team of people with yeah. whom Claire works. Did you have to be careful not to make any of them too close to people you actually worked with or knew so that they would recognize themselves? Right. Well, that's one of the reasons that, you know, fictionalizing is good. And if you notice in the book, uh, the college, in fact, is called Easton College, which doesn't exist. Um, and, uh, it's actually based really in this. People who know New York will know it's sort of like NYU. It's NYU, in, yeah. In yeah. Washington Square Park. But, I, you know, because I have issues involving the school and things they were involved in, uh, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to use a real school. So I created a fictional school. Um, I, and I, 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 for instance, in this book, for instance, um, I have created possibly the most obnoxious boss in the world for Claire, a really horrible person. And uh, that boss, people say, well, nobody could be that, you know, that unpleasant. Oh. And I said, well, actually, actually, I said, that person oh, yes, they is can. based on some of the editors. I've not a lot yeah. of really good editors, but I sort of yeah. cherry pick some of the people. And, you know, we've all had bosses who we say, oh, my God, that guy was a jerk. Yeah, she's not, and, no, uh, she's not so beyond I, the pale. She could, she could exist. Uh, is she going to continue? Is her boss going to continue in the yes. next Claire Carlson novel? Yeah, in fact, I just finished, I just finished the next one, and I kept her, and it it's funny because uh, I really wasn't sure about creating that character. And then when I did, I've had people say to me, it's like, oh, my God, I hate this woman so much. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've said, well, I've done my job because that was yeah. the idea. You know, I want to yeah. create somebody who's a – she's a real adversary for Claire. And uh, so it creates another uh, uh, dynamic. But we've all – you know, I think all of us well, – I can't speak for you. I'm sure everybody there is wonderful. But certainly with me, you've all had situations where you work for a boss who's like yep. – 
a pain and you, you know, yep. it's difficult and it makes your job harder. And uh, so I, I've really added that element uh, in this book to, to Claire's life. So it, it's just another whole level of what she has to go through. The newest one is called It's News to Me. It is a great one from R.G. Belsky. It is a, I mean, you can't miss with this. If you like to read mysteries, if you're looking for something (laughs) for an airplane trip, you cannot miss with this one. It's News to Me, R.G. Belsky. And Dick, great to have you back with us. I'm looking forward to reading the next one when that one comes out, but I hope this one does really well. Thank you, Jack. Always great talking to you. Let's get a little nostalgic around this time of year. Because it was September and October when I moved to San Antonio for the first time when I came here in 1994. I came down for a audition for a radio job at the other station. It, I think it was September of 94. And then got the job offer and was hired there and started in October. Uh, in fact, I think I started right around, right around Halloween. Or it was late October of that year. Was at that station for five years and had a great experience there. No bad words for anybody over there. Came to KTSA and almost every good thing that's ever happened to me has happened while I've worked here. So a little nostalgic about this particular season of the year. Does that include me? Don Cooper, it does include you. Absolutely it does. I'm only I'm only a little embarrassed for you that you asked that on the air, but yes. It, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> That's a little needy, but of course it does. You're one of my best friends in the world. Feeling and and how how many people can say? How many people can say they work with one of their best friends every day? I get to say that. So, absolutely, you are. Um. So I don't know a lot about this Spurs situation. You've probably been hearing about it in the news. If you don't know, the 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 number one or the first round draft choice of the Spurs is a guy they've now had to cut. And, I mean, he was with them for like five minutes. And his name is Josh Primo. And we're not sure what happened here. Uh, there there are some allegations being made uh, by a woman and possibly other women uh, in the Spurs organization. Uh, this particular woman was a psychologist, is a psychologist, and claims that, that this player, Josh Primo, uh, exposed himself to her and was very lewd and made unwelcome advances. Um, the Spurs cut this guy, um, and now the lawyer that represented the women who accused, um, and I'm blanking on his name, Don. Help me out with the the former Texans quarterback who's now with Cleveland. <laughs> They'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, that guy. Uh, now that lawyer is representing this woman, and there may be others we don't uh, we don't know. Um, I'll just say one thing about this because again, I don't know. I don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know if the player did these things or not, or if the woman is telling the truth or not. And the player, by the way, Josh Primo, uh, made a statement a while back about how he had trauma in his life and he needs to deal with that and so forth. I will just say this. Um. The Spurs are an organization, part of the NBA, and they are, uh, Deshaun Watson is the name I wanted. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Um, Spurs are an organization led by a guy named Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich is a big-time progressive. I just am continually amazed at how often 
progressive institutions, sports teams, movie studios, academia, are populated by people, and again, I don't know if Josh Primo is one of them or not, but are populated by people that prey on women. They are cesspools of rape and harassment and lewd behavior. It's just, it's very interesting. And again, everybody should get their day in court here and innocent until proven guilty, but if it turns out he did the things he did, you will have yet another example, right, of a of a institution full of progressive, forward-thinking on race and forward-thinking, you know, always with a lecture on how we can be better people. And it's just, it says a lot. And we'll see what happens. We'll see what, what comes out or if we ever really know for sure. 210-599-5555. Why could I not think of Deshaun Watson? Wow. Um, we'll get the midterm election on Tuesday night. We'll be here late into the night with coverage on that on KTSA. They're pulling out all the Democratic big guns in the final few days. Bill Clinton is out on the campaign trail. Um, he was giving a speech uh, the other day in New York State where he said this about what the Republicans really want to do. Cut number three. The Republicans are pretty simple, actually. They're and pretty straightforward. They say... I want you to be very miserable, <laughs> and I want you to be very angry, and I vote. I want you to vote for us, and we'll make it worse, but we'll blame them. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make this up. That's your strategy. I, you know, it's hard to see Bill Clinton getting old and kind of shaky. I think he's in his, like, mid-70s now, right? But, I mean, it happens to all of us. It's going to happen to all of us. I, I guess I just, it, it's really amazing to me that this is what they're reduced to. I mean, that that is not the Bill Clinton that rose from being governor of Arkansas to being the hope of the Democratic Party, the new face of the South, the president of the United States. Um, that's just a guy who's you can tell his heart's not even in it, you know. And and you notice that with the Democrats, right? I mean, Biden has sucked the oxygen out of their room. He is so enervated and drained and clearly not believing his own, you know, <laughs> believing his own message anymore, which really never was his message. And my theory has always been that, that, that Joe Biden is essentially a political Trojan horse, that very, very radical progressive people uh, literally stood behind him, hid behind him, or hid within him, I guess, so that they could get across the finish line, they could get through the gates of the city in November of 2020. And then once they did that, like with the story of the Trojan horse, the belly opened up, here they come, here come all of these terrible, unpopular uh, ideas that people would never have voted for if you had presented them uh, prima facie, but because you hid them inside this sort of benign-looking, I'm going to be a uniter guy, they didn't know. A lot of people didn't know. We had a lady last night who said, I really didn't know when I voted for him. But now we know, and now it's all out. And that's the misery. That's the anger. It's not um, that Republicans wanted people to be miserable and angry. It's that the Democrats have had the full... They've had all the reins in their hand. You know, you think about it, 
it's not just that Biden is president. They control the Congress. Um, they control most of the media and big tech. And I don't just mean control it. I mean, we're learning that big tech loves working with the federal government. They love working hand in glove with the Biden DOJ or DHS. And then they control or have infiltrated institutions like the military and the arts and entertainment industry and pretty much every major industry and producer in our country go up and down the, you know, the Dow Jones index. Look at all the wokeness. They control pretty much every institution of higher education. So they've had it all. And in these years, when they've had it all, they've brought forth everything they ever schemed and dreamed, and they've implemented it. And they've put their people, they've finally got the chance, their people are in position, Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris and who, Janet Yellen and whoever, that their people are in. And they're failing. And it's been a, it's, it's been a disaster. It has not worked the way they said it would, and it has made people miserable, poor, frightened, angry. People are looking at the country going, what, what, I don't recognize this. We were never like this. We're seeing our country vis-a-vis -vis the world in a position of, of real weakness. We're seeing our enemies obviously emboldened look everywhere you look on the on the world map uh our our adversaries the the usual suspects are getting pretty ballsy and so what does our leader do quote unquote he gives a speech last night blaming you scolding you you've been a letdown you're not sufficiently faithful to democracy. You are endangering democracy with how you're voting or planning to. You need to accept the results of the election. Now, that's interesting because we don't have the results of the election. I predict when we have the results, it'll be Joe Biden and his party that will have the hardest time accepting them and may not accept them. But you who have done your job, you who have followed the rules, you who may have even worn the uniform of this country, these people have not, but you have. You are the disappointment. You have failed us. You who kept going to work when they stayed home and ordered in. You who now have to choose between gasoline and groceries. And they're not even asking for your vote. They're demanding it. They're telling you that if you don't vote for them, you're not you're somehow un-American or undemocratic. And you must accept those election results unless those election results are really bad for them. Then they might not be acceptable. So that's, that's kind of where we are. And um, it, it's, I, I wrote a piece about this today at KTSA.com entitled The Worst Team Ever to Take the Field. I don't know exactly what's going to happen Tuesday night. I have a pretty good idea. And I think when it does, it'll be because they got everything they wanted and they failed. Not because they didn't have enough time or we didn't give them a chance or events conspired against them.
you know, it's funny how they say, well, we, this pandemic, this, you know, it's always the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic. Well, uh, voters aren't going to forgive either party for the pandemic. Voters didn't, didn't give Trump a pass on the pandemic, and they're not going to give these people a pandemic pass either. In fact, th- the truth is, it's not so much that Democrats broke their promises. Our problem is they kept them, and we've had to live with it. Indivisibles. Oh, there she is. There's our gal. 640 on KTSA. Coming up, the results on the JR poll. Yeah, I was talking earlier about how, um, and, I, and, and I know you don't vote based on the, appear, the physical appearance of, of, the, of the candidates. I, I know you don't do that. But can we just acknowledge that there are people who do? There probably are a lot of them. Um, and I was thinking about this today. I'm going to play you a couple of clips, but I, I was thinking today about just the visual impact of like it, it, like in the Arizona race, Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate, admittedly, she's a former television personality. So she has a camera presence. She knows how to wear makeup and, but, but she just looks like a leader. She projects this sort of confidence and cap- capability, right? And her opponent is this woman named Katie Hobbs, who, um, you talk about wallflowers, she just sounds like a a very weak, ineffectual uh, person. She's the one, in case you've you've heard this before, she's the one that keeps dodging a debate. She won't debate Carrie Lake. CNN had her on. I want to play this for you. Listen to the, and this is CNN, so it's not a a harsh atmosphere for a Democratic candidate. Listen to the exchange with Katie Hobbs about the debate. Cut number six. I have to ask you, um, listen, why not, I want to talk about your debating. Why not debate your opponent? If you believe your opponent is, you know, has issues in the spreading conspiracy theories uh, about a stolen election and so Mm -hmm. on, and it's not being truthful with the, the people of Arizona, why then not get on the debate stage? And, and debate her. You know, not only is Carrie Lake, has she centered her entire platform around this election denialism, um, I didn't want to give her a bigger stage to do that. But additionally, she has shown that she's not interested in having any kind of substantive conversation. Um, she's only interested in creating a spectacle. But and I didn't you, want if to you be- were in the same space with her, wouldn't, you be, wouldn't it be easier to knock it down in front of everyone, in front of the most people? Because you're not stopping her from spreading yeah. Whatever you believe that you know, she is spreading, by not debating her, she can go on television, she can talk about it, she can go in front of the, the people of Arizona every single day and talk about it, but you're not confronting her on it. It seems well, like it would be an when easy... Don Lemon, it's bad when Don Lemon has to give you political advice. <laughs> Don Lemon is telling her, this is what you need to do. Katie, come on, you need to get out there, you need to do a debate. Listen to her talk about why she won't do it. Look, we're six days out from the election and our campaign strategy is our campaign strategy. So we're Mm. moving forward. I'm continuing Mm. to make my case to the voters of Arizona, uh, whether or not 
uh, we debated in this race is not going to decide this election. So, um, you know, I just we made the decision, didn't want to be a part of her spectacle. And she's not mm. uh, she she won't answer these tough questions um, to to real <laughs> reporters. She only talks to fake But Secretary, news it's not just her that you won't debate. You also did oh, not debate this. your no, Democratic primary opponent, Marco Lopez. Why? And have you ever? I was, have you I ever? I was miles ahead of him in the race and won handily. It's a totally different situation. Oh, listen here. to this. Well, okay, so stop the tape. Stop the tape. She didn't debate. So Carrie Lake is a, is a wacko, and I don't want to give her more of a stage. Okay. But your fellow Democrat couldn't get you to debate either. And she says, because I was miles ahead. Imagine the arrogance. The, the people don't need to hear from me. I don't need to explain myself to the people. I'm miles ahead. I, I don't need to do a debate. Yeah, let's make somebody like that the governor. That sounds great. Why don't just make her queen? See, that's the, that's the attitude I can't fathom. I was miles ahead. I didn't need to do a debate. So she has an excuse for every debate. No matter who you throw at her, oh, I, I can't debate that person. Oh, no, not that, not that opponent. And this is what I mean about the Democrats. They've got like a lot of beta people. Katie Hobbs, Charlie Crist in Florida, good God, really, death of a salesman, right? Like every woman's first husband. Uh, Patty Murray, the cat lady from Washington State. I mean, they pick on Fetterman, but really, there's a lot of them that are kind of they're, they're kind of beta people. And then you look at the, this, I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of the Republican candidates, the new candidates, DeSantis, Adam Laxalt, J.D. Vance, uh, these people are, are crisp. They, they present well. They can argue their positions well. They're quick on their feet. And they seem to have more like more alpha people. And the Democrats this time around at least seem to be running a lot more uh, beta uh, people. Tim Ryan is another one. Tim Ryan is a, is, a, is a really slippery guy. Now, Tim Ryan, the Democratic candidate in Ohio, is now in the 11th hour saying that he is against third trimester abortions, even though he voted repeatedly for unlimited abortion, abortion right up through the ninth month. And that's, of course, the position of his party. But he's in a, a battleground Ohio state, a battleground state, tight race with J.D. Vance. And um, they figured out how to, how to help Tim Ryan. They, they brought in a, a woman brimming with charisma and charm, somebody that people really love and warm up to quickly, and she's campaigning for Tim Ryan. Take a listen to this, cut number five. Who's the one who fought for that, who fought for schools? It's Tim Ryan. It's Tim Ryan. Tim understands that we all have to have a seat at the table. Tim Mm. understands that Ohioan children and workers need somebody to have their back and be on their side. Yes. That's who Tim Ryan is. It's Tim Ryan. This is Randy Weingarten, the head of the teachers union. Just a delightful person. It's Tim Ryan. She says it over and over again like that. Don't you people get it? It's Tim Ryan. Who's Toilet the one who fought is people. Mmm. Yes. If I was running in a tight race, I'd bring in Randy Weingarten. 
She she really connects with parents. They love her. Woman that kept the schools closed. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. I mean, they just have kind of they have beta people and they're making a beta case. Uh, you know, for the most part. And and, and again, they they're also there's an elephant in the room. I don't mean the Republicans. I mean there's there's another thing that's hobbling the Democrats. I'm not asking you to be sympathetic to them, but let's face it. They have to navigate and and tiptoe around the fact that Biden is the head of the party. I mean, even though he may not run in 2024, he is hanging around the neck of these Democratic candidates. And I know you've seen the television ads. Every television ad for a Republican candidate, when depicting or referring to the Democratic candidate, there's always a picture of Joe Biden. Joe Biden, by the way, uh, had another moment uh, yesterday. He was talking about uh, EVs, electric cars, and he's you know he's a man of the future. He he knows that this is the way it's going. Listen to him get enthusiastic about electric cars. Cut number four. And by the way, in your home, you know the batteries that we have now, and they're getting more and more sophisticated. Mm. You know, a lightning storm takes out all the electricity mm. in the house. Guess what? You can plug your car into the house and make it light up. What? You think I'm joking. It's a little simplistic, but literally you can. Literally you can. You can pl- <laughs> oh, you can- this summer. <laughs> it really is kind of exciting. I, 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 I get a little. You get excited about it. Um, oh, Brandon. So let me see if I understand this right. I have an electric storm and the power goes out of my house. But hopefully the storm only strikes after I have fully charged my electric car. Because if it happens while I'm charging my electric car and I plug my house into my car, what am I going to have, like 30 seconds of electricity? And then, okay, I plug into my car, my EV, and I I'm, I'm have some power in my house. What do I do when I've depleted the power in the EV? I guess then I get a gasoline generator. Will there still be gasoline for that, or are we doing away with fossil fuel? I'm confused. Um, he, he, you know, it would be better to just not talk about this stuff, but he, he feels like he can, you know, carry this off. By the way, if you drain your EV powering your house all night because the power went out, how do you get to work the next day so that you can pay for the $90,000 EV that you have. I know there's a television commercial, I think it's the Ford F-150 Lightning, um, where they they promote or they refer to the fact that you could uh, power your house off the truck. But again, for how long, right? And And then eventually, the problem with all these EVs and the problem with this green future is somehow we seem to keep coming back to good old fossil fuels. We're we're going to need them. We're going to need we're going to need oil to make the plastics that go into the EV. So, but yeah, when I hear Joe Biden talk about how excited he is about the future, right? It really is kind of exciting. Hmm. Man of the future, Joe Biden. By then. Um, on the JR poll, uh, which obviously no surprise, we asked you about the governor's race overwhelmingly. Uh, Greg Abbott, eighty nine percent. Beto O'Rourke, eleven percent. Um, and uh, we will, of course, be here Tuesday night with uh, extended coverage into the night coverage. I 
I say this, though, with the caveat that election night isn't what it used to be, right? I mean, you're not going to be sitting there going, okay, that's over, that's over, that one, that one is uh, in the books, we know who won that one. Everybody is saying all across the spectrum, oh, days, weeks. And that's where the trouble begins. It's hard enough to believe that when you went and voted and you took your little paper ballot out of the machine and you put it in that scanner thing and you walked out, that's an act of faith. Then, come election night, oh, we're still counting, oh, we're still counting, oh, we've got a dispute, oh, we found some ballots, oh, we lost some ballots, oh, we found some It's just, it's tough. And then everybody thinks they know what's going to happen, so everybody who guessed wrong or predicted wrong is going to think, wait a minute, it's not that I was wrong, it's that the fix is in. It's like you're at a game, and the scoreboard is wrong, the runs are wrong, the hits are wrong, the clock is wrong, the errors are, you know, but that's where we're at. And we will be here for all the madness Tuesday night, and back here tomorrow live at 4, plus we'll have the dish to wrap up the week and kick off the weekend. Join us live at 4 or on demand, the Jack Riccardi Show at KTSA.com.